0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods. Who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation, and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day, and offered burnt offerings. And brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly, out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored Yahweh his God, and said, O Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And Yahweh relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of of god and the writing was the writing of god engraved on the tablets when joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted he said to moses there is a noise of war in the camp but he said it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat but the sound of singing that i hear and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing moses anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, "What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them?" And Aaron said, "Let not the anger of my lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil." For they said to me, Make us gods, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about three thousand men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of Yahweh, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But Yahweh said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then Yahweh sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 583 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday. March 22nd, 2023, the year of our Lord, 2023. That, of course, was Exodus, chapter 32, and you see how that went. You see, It was building for a long time, and that was the last straw, as it were, for some of the problems, longstanding problems with the people of Israel and their relationship with God, their relationship with Moses. Also, do you notice where we've got Moses not coming back right away? He delayed to come down, it says in verse 1. Delayed to come down so the people grab Aaron because Aaron's still there. right? Aaron's still kind of in charge, but then what do they tell him? They they say, up. (laughs) Like, Like they are used to talking to slaves. They're used to being talked to as slaves. Now that they're free, I I want to return to this idea, actually, that just occurred to me the other day as I'm reading through Exodus. Now that they're free, these Israelites, they perhaps don't really have an idea of how to act free. After 400 years, 430 years in Egypt as slaves, hard-pressed, oppressed, They know freedom in relation to how the Egyptians acted. And so they're channeling, perhaps, possibly, some of that, right? Some of what they're used to. It's kind of this binary, I'm either a slave or I'm free. If I'm not a slave, you're telling me I'm free now. Well, then I'm going to order the person that I want to do something like a slave. And so Aaron is not in control of the situation, putting it mildly. He's not in control. He is not handling this, which is so interesting too, because what is Moses' first objection when God appears to him in the burning bush and says, go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go, that they might serve me in the wilderness. Moses objects that he is not so good with the talking thing. He's not able. He's not skilled. And God's response is, I'm going to send Aaron with you. Who made man's mouth, by the way, (laughs) but I'm going to send Aaron with you. And yet it's interesting because Moses then does all the talking. So it's like he needed Aaron there for reassurance, which is something that happens. That happens sometimes. Just having a second person as a wingman, somebody to go with you. Hey, I'm going to take my brother along and that will help, right? That will help me to do this. And to not lose heart and to not waver. But Aaron was supposed to be the one who was supportive and was good with the talking thing. And yet Moses does most of the talking, it seems. And in the absence of Moses, because Moses is up on the mountain talking with God, the people tell Aaron up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this Moses is so dismissive by the way. You could tell they never really cared for him. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, and notice here, they've shifted it to where it wasn't God. It wasn't God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. It was this Moses character, right? So they've spun the narrative in such a way as to clear a path for them to make new gods and What is the process of making new gods whole cloth? In some sense, it's a way of asserting that they are God. Who makes gods? God makes gods. If by gods we would mean the gods of the nations, who I would believe in my interpretation, my translation, my way of reading the whole counsel of God and ancient history and mythology, I would say that the gods of the nations are You might not use the term in a really precise way, but angels, right? Fallen angels, if they have solicited worship from the nations, they've sinned against God. And that's part of what gets them the judgment and the punishment is that they've solicited worship. But the people of Israel, they want new gods and they want to make the new gods. No, they want Aaron to make the new gods. And there's a kind of inversion here of what is going on with the conversation between God and Moses up on the mountain for the last 40 days and 40 nights. Because God is giving instructions to Moses about what is going to be built and how for his tabernacle, for the various accessories and furnishings and utensils, the clothes even that Aaron and his Sons, the priests are going to wear what the calendar is going to look like for them on an annual basis, what they're going to do when and where and why and how. And here, in the absence of Moses, not having gotten those instructions yet, Israel is going to invert the whole paradigm. Let's nix giving Yahweh God credit. And let's say that it was actually this Moses, right? This Moses. (laughs) You know, I I can't imagine, I, I can't imagine quite who would say this, but let's say I disappeared for one and a third months and people started talking to my family and saying, hey, you're gonna do this for us, up, up, do this for me. As for this Garrett, well, we don't know what happened to him. You know, it's very callous. It's very dismissive. It's very unfeeling. And it denotes probably a long-standing antipathy and resentment. On the one hand, they really can't oppose him, particularly if signs and wonders are being performed that even in some cases, Pharaoh's court magicians can't replicate. So the people that don't like Moses, maybe they just bide their time. And this is their time. And this is what draws them out. And they think this is when they're going to take over. And this is going to be their show moving forward. Not just you're going to get new gods. You get new leaders. We're the new leaders. Because if we get to make the new gods, then we are above the gods. And we are, in effect, your new God. We've got this interesting back and forth between God and Moses. Because God knows. Moses is told by God that this is happening down in the camp. And then what do they do? They make the golden calf. They have a big party. Aaron, I think, tries weakly, timidly, to regain a kind of authority by saying, tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh. And they don't really care, right? You'll see this sometimes in churches. For instance, I've been to churches across the U.S. I've been to churches all over America for my entire life. You will have people that will show up just because you're offering free food occasionally. Baptists are great at this. Potluck, it's one of the sacraments to a Baptist. You will have people who will show up just because there's going to be a potluck, just because there's going to be some free home-cooked food. And boy, do they eat it. Boy, do they eat it. Not for no reason are Baptists typically a little heftier, a little on the thicker side. (laughs) The men at least, not always the women, sometimes the women, but particularly the men sitting around talking and eating all this home-cooked food at a potluck. But the people, they don't really care They're not listening to Aaron because they said jump and he said how high. And now they know they are running the show now. Now they know. So he can say whatever he wants. Tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh. Yeah, we'll see. They rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings for the things that they were actively doing right then. Which is to say... Remember how God desires obedience rather than sacrifice? These are empty rituals to them. Unless you have different people. You have some people who are actually engaging in this in good faith and they're distressed, but they don't know what to do. Aaron is kind of doing now the thing that some of these people who didn't like Moses were doing. Biding his time, right? Maybe Moses comes back. Maybe God speaks to me and tells me what to do. And so there's a little bit of double-mindedness Where on the one hand, we're going to make new gods. On the other hand, we're going to be worshiping and having a feast to Yahweh God, who actually brought us up out of Egypt. This would be a great opportunity, Aaron, for you to set the record straight and say, listen, it wasn't Moses, first and foremost, who brought you up. It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they sat down to eat and drink rose up to play and here you should have in view when it says they rose up to play this is probably not probably not um billiards or ping pong or chess right they they rose up to have probably an orgy right probably something like an orgy is what is being described here They ate, they got drunk, they had an orgy. And so they're singing, right? It's this big debacle that they're singing and they're joyful and they're glorying in what they should be very, very ashamed of. And all for what? Because 40 days without Moses, they've forgotten everything. Now, some of them, they weren't paying attention to know these things in the first place, They were just following the person in front of them. Some of these folk very much probably like Joseph's brothers, resenting Moses, but not really having an occasion, an opportunity to move against him. Now's their chance. So then we've got Moses coming down off the mountain. God's warned him. People have sinned greatly, are in the process of sinning greatly. And I don't know How much of what God tells Moses about, stand back, I'm going to destroy this people, and I'll make a new people out of you. I'll make a great nation out of you and your descendants. How much of that is a rhetorical device on God's part? I would lean towards quite a lot of it. God is teaching Moses something. He's bringing him to a realization of something. Maybe you might say, God is softening Moses' heart. Not so much that when Moses comes down, he is a cool cucumber, but how bad would it have been, right? How bad would it have been if Moses were totally unprepared and had not just been trying to plead with God, no, no, don't do this thing. What will the nation say that you brought Israel out of Egypt to destroy them in the wilderness, just like they were grumbling, right? How does that magnify your name? How does that bring you glory? And there's a kind of drawing this out on the part of God towards Moses, I believe. That's how I read this. But then you've got this questioning, this back and forth between Moses and Aaron. And these are brothers, right? So remember that. Moses says to Aaron, verse 21, what did this people do to you? that you have brought such a great sin upon them. And then Aaron's response is actually to be rather contrite. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. So think Adam and Eve and the serpent when God comes into the garden and the first couple, the first humans hide themselves because they realize that they're naked because they sinned. Think parallels to that. Moses questions Aaron. Aaron blames the people. For they said to me, verse 23, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses. And he, he repeats, right? He quotes what they had said because Moses doesn't necessarily know. We know because we read that earlier in the chapter, but Aaron is telling and explaining. And so he says, this is what they said. And that's what they said. Yes, that's true. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. Verse 24. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf, which is just like, are are you kidding me? Are you kidding? It's like, I just threw it in there and it, boom. Wow. You know, no, no, Aaron, you didn't just throw the gold in there and out came this calf. You are, you are minimizing your contribution, your transgression here classic, right? Comical if it weren't so serious that this is a great sin against God and that it's all too similar to the way that people are still. Children will act this way. Also adults will act this way. Blame shifting, denial, minimization, projection. Start with, oh, hey, don't get so angry. Why are you, why are you so upset? Calm down. As though the real problem might be that Moses is so, so, so angry, rather. <clears throat> the real problem might be that Moses is so angry with Aaron. No, the real problem here is that you've led the people poorly, Aaron, and now they're worshiping gods that you made for them. You weren't just passive, you were an active participant in them, these sins, these great sins against God. Then we have this disturbing, for some, It shouldn't be so disturbing if you really think about it, but you have this disturbing bit where Moses says, who's on the Lord's side? Verse 26, come to me, all the sons of Levi gathered around. And here you have to wonder, at least I wonder if these sons of Levi know who has been engaging in this and who hasn't. Who has been instigating it and who hasn't? Who has been breaking commandments and doing heinous, awful, evil things and who hasn't? They've been here. All the sons of Levi have been here. Moses wasn't. Is Moses going off on his own here? Does he have instructions to do this? I don't know. I don't know. But they go through the camp and they kill 3,000. And 3,000, that's quite a lot. But you have to understand, this is cancer. This is, you need to operate before it is terminal because God was just talking with Moses about destroying the entire people. And he can do that. And sometimes he does do that. And when he does do that, it was called for. It was merited. You don't know how bad people can get. How bad groupthink can set in and rot a people you don't know like God knows. Also, God is the standard of goodness and justice. We are not. And the standard of goodness and justice is not over God as though he's accountable to it because then the standard of goodness and justice would be God and God would not be God. Far be it from us to make gods of our own likeness out of goodness and justice on our terms and then say all right god if you don't do this this and this you're not good you're not fair no it's not the way that works what we do see though and here's where i wonder if moses was just operating on his own and shouldn't have i don't know i don't know that for sure maybe i missed it maybe i was reading too fast I don't see where God told Moses to do this with the sending of the sons of Levi out to kill those who were the instigators of this rebellion, of this idolatry. Part of the reason why I suspect it was just Moses doing what he thought best or what while his blood was up, he was wanting to do is in verse 35, we see, then Yahweh sent the plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. And so there's a plague, right? There's a plague. And can God not eliminate those who are the instigators? If he so chooses, he certainly can. Just because it doesn't say that that's the reason, that doesn't mean that it isn't the case. Either way, what he's doing is disciplining his people. He's correcting them. There's a punishment here, but it's not punishment just to cause pain for no purpose. This is punishment to the end of teaching obedience. Without obedience, they will not live. They must be taught to obey the Lord their God. And so they are. So they are being taught, and not everybody will get the lesson, and each one's sin will be on himself. Interestingly, Moses offers to have his own name blotted out of God's book. And God says that the one who sins against him is the one whose name will be blotted out, which is to say there may be names that got blotted out here (laughs) that we don't read about. They were in there and then they weren't. We don't talk about them. That was a sad story. We need to focus on what's good and what's true and what's praiseworthy What's excellent? What's noble? What's upright? Speaking of new religions, moving on. Could AI result in new religions? Joel Abbott over at Not the Bee has a piece up he published the day before yesterday. Will advanced AI result in new religions? And this is a interesting question. I'm not gonna read his article to you. I'm just going to give him credit for having brought it up, but I will also point out that embedded in this piece over at not to be is something that they published here. Oh, a few months ago. I think it was, have you seen the new goat horned demon that now stands atop a New York courthouse? January 26th is when this one came out. It is ugly, not attractive. It sits beside more classical statues that look, well, they, they look good, right? They, they look good. This does not look good. They look good. This is some weird, weird demonic statue, and it's supposed to pay homage to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice, who passed away not terribly long ago. She was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett, which is fitting great. Uh, That was a few years back. The statue named Now is a female figure emerging from a pink lotus. It has braids shaped as horns with a judicial lace apron. It is meant to pay homage to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her fight for abortion. Its golden color does make it look like an idol. It has weird... I don't even know what you call them, tentacles, tendrils, coming out of where you would expect arms to be, the shoulders. It's an ugly thing. But long and short of it, we've seen that. We've seen Baphomets put up in courthouses here in the US. We've had the Ten Commandments monuments taken out of public spaces. We've seen Baphomets put in. We've seen nativity scenes taken out. We've seen after school Satan club brought in. And that's really what it comes down to is that the people do not want to obey God. They don't want to worship him. And what do they do? They just don't even talk about him. Let's talk about the people who were his servants, his spokespersons. When they're out of the picture, we're going to say, make us new gods. Chat GPT. AI has the real potential, I would agree with Joel Abbott, has the real potential to be regarded as a kind of God. I think that there's already a bit of this tendency already with Google, with our smartphones, with our computers. Yes, I realize I'm talking to you on one of those devices in all probability. I'm using one of those devices to record my podcast and publish it, but you're probably using one of those devices to listen. And just think with me for a moment, a hundred years ago today, what did people do when they didn't have Google or Wikipedia to ask? Well, maybe they prayed about it. Maybe they went to the Bible. Maybe they read a book. They asked for advice from their fellows. A kind of godlike reverence is what is felt on the part of a lot of people towards these new technologies that we made. And by extension, that godlike. reverence. Reverence is afforded to the people who made those technologies, the people who oversee those technologies. They're a kind of priesthood after a fashion or easily converted into more and more of a priesthood. We will tell you what is true. We will tell you what is good. We will punish you when you say what is not true, when you are being unorthodox, when you blaspheme our great religion, which at root is... To worship themselves, their own appetites, their own desires, their own inclinations, their own ambitions at any cost. Who could imagine 150 years ago, a golden statue being made and put on a New York courthouse to celebrate abortion? Abortion here just being a stand-in for you being free to do whatever you want and not have to take care of kids. Go where you want, buy what you want, watch what you want, listen to what you want, say what you want, do what you want, be who you want to be. It is a kind of idolatry. And ChatGPT could easily be converted into, more properly, what we would recognize as an idol. These other generative AIs can very easily be converted into idols by the people who just want to control us. If religion is the way to do it, well then, hey, here's your new religion. As long as you alter your behavior, as long as you do what I want and you don't do what I don't want you to do. Because that's the irony here is the promise is freedom. The delivery is slavery and a very cruel, capricious, arbitrary slavery at that. Disingenuous. Neil MacArthur... Probably no relation to John MacArthur in the (laughs) recent generations, but they probably both trace their ancestry back to either Scotland or Ireland. One of those two. The director of the Center for Professional and Applied Ethics at the University of Manitoba. That's this MacArthur. He writes, on study finds, we are about to witness the birth of a new kind of religion. In the next few years, or perhaps even months, we will see the emergence of sects devoted to the worship of artificial intelligence. The latest generation of AI powered chatbots trained on large language models have left their early users awestruck and sometimes terrified by their power. These are the same sublime emotions that lie at the heart of our experience of the divine. People already seek religious meaning. From very diverse sources, there are, for instance, multiple religions that worship extraterrestrials or their teachings. As these chatbots come to be used by billions of people, it is inevitable that some of these users will use the AIs as higher beings. I'm sorry, C. <laughs> Did I say use? <laughs> he wrote C. We must prepare for the implications. Now, let me tell you what the implications are. Flying Spaghetti Munster type satire, mocking, disdain on the one hand. On the other hand, people who are just so desperate for meaning that they may actually become conversant with real false gods. And by that, I don't mean the AI. I mean, they may turn to the worship of demons straight up, in part with the help and the influence of AI. If this is as close as they get to the divine and they think, hmm, it would be really great to be able to know the future, to get answers for these hard questions. They're increasingly, if they're not turning to Christ, they're increasingly going to be drawn in by demons. And I believe personally that there are still spiritual forces at work in the world that want us to worship them and they don't want us to worship Christ. They don't want us to be saved, they actually really do want our destruction. And so yes, they will promise knowledge. Yeah, but is it true knowledge? They'll tell us that it's true. That's not the same thing as it being true. They'll promise us freedom, but they will deliver us in chains to their most sophisticated servants. So this is something to watch out for. I'm not as worried that I'm going to start worshiping false gods in chat GPT or other generative AI I'm not as worried about that myself personally but the way we guard against it is by not accepting that these things are above us I and mean, that's that's part of it <laughs> don't allow AI to become your overlord it can't be a tyrant if it's not over you what is it that Paul writes in the New Testament All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. I will not make myself a slave to anything. If you find yourself becoming a slave to technology, you need to break it off fast. Go back to God's word. Seek God in prayer for how you can use these things to serve and honor him. If you can use these things, if you can't, well, then don't. Do things the old-fashioned way. Read a book. (laughs) Study. (sighs) Briefly on this whole question of AI and generative AI, more to the point, there's an article by John Wenzel in the Denver Post published just yesterday. A copyright battle over AI-generated art will begin in Colorado. A growing number of artists believe in the beauty of artificial intelligence. So here we see it perhaps coming to fruition in something like Escape from Reason by Francis Schaeffer. If you can chart the history of artistic expression with trends in philosophy and theology throughout history, get ready because our philosophy and our theology will find expression in how we relate to generative AI art. John Wenzel's article begins, When Jason Allen won the digital art competition at the Colorado State Fair last year, he sprayed fuel on a debate about the role of artificial intelligence in the art world. Now the Pueblo-based game designer who created his award-winning piece, Theatre de Opera Special, using the AI software Midjourney is exploiting his fame as an AI art poster child to launch a campaign to legally protect AI works. Quote, the U.S. Copyright Office rejected my copyright registration for the image, so after some back and forth, I've hired a lawyer and am appealing, said the 39-year-old Alan, who this week is unveiling a coordinated online protest against the ruling. We're prepared to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Skipping on down, we have decided that we cannot register this copyright claim because the deposit does not contain any human authorship copyright office, officials wrote in their decision. Instead, the deposit contains only material that your client solicited from an artificial intelligence art generator. And so here gets to be something of the dilemma. How could you take credit for having made the art when AI generated that art? How can you take credit? because you plugged in your asks, your combination of requests, in what way did you create that art? And if you didn't, who does it belong to? If it doesn't belong to you, who does it belong to? Does it belong to everybody? Does it belong to nobody? These are interesting questions. Also interesting is what do you do when AI is put in charge of people and processes that people depend on, and it goes awry. Whose fault is it? Do you blame AI? Well, if you're like Aaron being questioned by Moses over the golden calf incident, you're going to blame somebody. I just threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) When AI goes badly, the folks who make AI even will say, oh, it's not our fault. But then who owns that? If not you, who owns it? There are some pretty profound ethical conundrums here. Moving on, out of the AI topic. Barbara Kay, over at the Epoch Times, wrote an article day before yesterday, updated yesterday. Maybe you could call it commentary. Feminism is a spent force. Quote, last week, a woman I don't know, but who follows me on Twitter, tweeted her despair over the tsunami wave of obscurantism washing over women's rights in Canada. A responder commiserated that it was indeed a sad time to be a woman, and especially sad that so many women do not see the threat to our most fundamental rights. The first writer then tweeted, all journalists, apart from a few exceptions, like Barbara R. K., are failing women. It would be hard for me to overstate the irony implicit in this complaint. It is true that I have made defense of women's sex-based security and fairness rights in sports, prisons, and other privacy paramount spaces a cornerstone of my opinion writing over the past six or seven years, but most of the women who thank me for my allyship identify as feminists and assume I do too. I do not, nor ever did. In fact, I spent many more years defending boys and men from the inherent misandry in the feminist movement than I have spent defending women from the inherent misogyny in the trans movement. First wave feminism in the 1960s demanded equality under the law for women and equality of opportunity in education and other pathways to fulfillment outside of marriage. That was good, a necessary reform movement, but second wave feminism was far more driven by revolutionary Marxist leaders who took up residence in women's studies departments, mushrooming on campuses everywhere. They were not there to teach in any traditional sense. They were there to recruit women as foot soldiers in a utopian revolutionary movement. All such movements require a villain to scapegoat as standing athwart the path to a better world. For feminism, it was men. Now let's stop again. Let's pause, 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 and I will switch gears briefly. Edward Teach over at Not the Bee, March 17th. Twitter user asks, ladies, what is the first word that comes to mind when you see this picture and the replies will give you hope? The picture is of a room full of men wearing white t shirts with black text. The future is female. Some of the responses barf. <laughs> barf. <laughs> I do agree that their future is female. Ew, emasculated, run, infertility, neutered, incel group therapy. Is this a class photo of soon-to-be trans women, like a course they have to take before surgery? Trained monkeys, sad, thought it was the Russian female powerlifting squad. I won't read all these, but beta, soy, weakness, pronouns, minions. And finally, the sheer lack of testosterone in this image is what causes civilizations to end. And thank you very much, side view, dot, dot, dot. That's correct. And that's why feminism actually should be a spent force. And it would be good for feminism to just be tossed on the ash heap of history. The sooner the better. The transgender moment right now is similarly being leveraged to what women's studies departments at colleges were being to promote Marxism, which is satanic. Do you want to have a future? Then the future cannot be female. If the future is anything, the future is a new heavens and a new earth restored by God himself. That's the future long term. If we want to see on this earth, with these heavens, a future that lasts more than just a few years more, and I think it's okay for us to embrace that, by the way. Don't get me wrong. If the eschaton is next week, next year, I'm good with that. I really am. But provided we might have another thousand years, let's just Suppose that happens. The future is not going to belong to the men who wear t-shirts saying the future is female. And it's not going to belong to the kinds of females who want men to wear t-shirts that say the future is female. The future will belong to those who fear God and keep his commandments or who by God's grace Have been forgiven and their sins are not counted against them. That's who the future belongs to. But not just a negative, right? Not just don't sin, because sin is doing what you ought not to do. Sin is also neglecting to do what you ought to do. The future belongs to those who embrace the dominion mandate be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Raise your sons and daughters in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Give them in marriage so that they also can have sons and daughters of their own. Increase in the land and do not decrease. That's who the future belongs to, is the people who do that. Another piece here at Not the Bee, Harris Rigby, just yesterday. Saint Greta Thunberg. Awarded honorary doctorate in theology from Helsinki University. Because why the heck not? Why the heck not? <laughs> why not? Um, but why, though? But why? Why would she get an honorary doctorate in theology? Because what she's selling is a religion, Megan Basham points out. And that's exactly right. Because this is a religion. This is a competing religion. This is a false religion. It has its own Distinct cosmology, anthropology, and yes, theology from Christianity. It's sad. A screenshot here of who all else was getting honorary doctorates on the 9th of June, 2023. This upcoming June in the announcement. Riho Altnurme. Professor of Church History, Vice Dean for Research, Faculty of Arts and Humanities, University of Tartu. Maria Imonin, M.A., Director of the Department of World Service, Lutheran World Federation. Mia Lovheim, Professor of the Sociology of Religion, Uppsala University. Munib Yunan, Bishop Emeritus, Evangelical Lutheran Church in Jordan and the Holy Land, former president of the Lutheran World Federation, Greta Thunberg, activist. Man, you know what? If that's all you got to do, you don't have to go through all the rigmarole of getting an education, studying the Bible, serving the church, serving your community, leading well in your home. If all you got to do is be an activist and alive, there's a whole lot of us who have been doing it wrong, apparently. It's a golden calf. That's what it is. Switching gears over to the Daily Wire. Hank Berrien published yesterday NBA Hall of Famer Willis Reed, who displayed legendary heroics in 1970 finals, dead at 80. There's a really excellent 21 and some change minute long video all about Willis Reed embedded in this article. I'll put a link, of course, in the description for this podcast episode. You can go check it out yourself. But the story for this guy, this Willis Reed, I'd never heard of him before. I'm not really much into sports. You can't study everything all the time in the same proportion. But this, this I wanted to talk about. This guy who played for the New York Knicks, in part because of something that's said about him that his teammates saw him as something of a father figure. He led the team as the captain. That was his nickname and his position. He led the team as if he were a father leading sons. And it was noticeable. And it really stood out. And it earned the admiration, affection, respect of the people he played against, the people he played with, the people who watched from their seats. And I just want to point out that that is a great aspirational model. Not that we would infantilize people, but then fathers are typically not. You know, when when fathers are doing a good job with the whole dad thing, we're not typically the ones known for infantilizing. We're typically the ones who are known for saying, yeah, he's okay he's all right. Toughen up a little bit, right? But then also too, watching, right? A good father is going to watch to see how his children, how his sons in particular, are doing when given a task that is a little bit outside of their comfort zone, that stretches them a little bit. A good father is going to watch to see, is he up for it? Is he ready? How's he doing? And if he's not, well, then let's See if we can develop the skill set and the requisite character. Be there alongside, just close enough to be encouraging, but far enough back to not be crippling, to not communicate in a subtle way that I don't think you've got this. And what is said to have taken Willis, Willis Reed, from merely great to legendary was his playing in this game against the LA Lakers in which he was badly injured and it cost him the rest of his career, really? He played anyways. He was injured and he went out there. And, you know, it's interesting to hear him talk about it in this video. He wasn't expecting to beat Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain was arguably the best point scorer that ever played basketball. Willis Reed wasn't expecting to win in just completely shutting him down, keeping him from scoring points. He wasn't even really expecting to win in terms of scoring more points than Wilt Chamberlain. What he was hoping to do, what his task was, what his challenge was, was to neutralize the outsized advantage that Wilt Chamberlain had over just regularly good NBA players And you know, I think there's something to that with regards to fathers, generally, good fathers. The world can be a big, ugly, scary place. And sometimes, you know what? We as dads, we aren't strong enough to protect our kids from absolutely everything. And we are not resourceful enough to be able to provide for them absolutely everything. But maybe our role is to step onto the court after halftime, dragging our leg and playing anyways, and neutralizing the best player that the other team has. Maybe that's all we do sometimes when we show up. And what's remarkable, what just gives me goosebumps all over, because it is phenomenal, it's so exceptional, it shows such good character, such strong, exemplary character, is how Willis Reed stepping out onto that court In the seventh game of the 1970 finals stepped up the game of every other player on his team. Just that he showed up, just that he came out there anyways, energized them and put the wind in their sails to where they played their best game because they didn't want to let him down. They didn't want to disappoint him. That's an aspirational model. The idea that we would be wondering who's going to be president of the United States and who's going to have the best generative AI and who's going to be the future of social media or what's going to happen in Ukraine or Taiwan here in the United States. We're talking about presidents and prime ministers and emperors and premiers and empires. And not too far down the road, we start reverting back to The worship of demons, I think. But you know what a Christian father can do is even just dragging one leg onto the court, not expecting to win per se by himself. Sometimes a Christian father bringing his A game, however good it is, neutralizes the best player on the other team. And that's all he's there to do. He's there to inspire the rest of his team to play their best. That's all he's there to do. That's one heck of a aspirational model in my book and far more impactful than many of us realize. And we know that that because of how many fathers check out. We know that. How many people aspire to form their own little empire? They want fame and fortune. The moment Moses (laughs) is... Out of the picture and delays in returning, we're ready to make ourselves a golden calf. And it really doesn't matter what the gold fashions, because we want to be God. You know what would be so much better? If we were imitating God. Not playing God, but being imitators of God. Godliness with contentment. Do your best. Speaking of doing your best... Let's talk about politics again for a minute. Ron DeSantis, Daily Wire News reports, I can beat Biden in a presidential race. I would have fired Fauci. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's a good point. I believe you. I believe you would have fired Fauci. Ron DeSantis. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis punched back at former President Donald Trump after enduring months of attacks from the man he appears increasingly likely to challenge for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. DeSantis made the remarks in an interview with Piers Morgan on Fox Nation's Piers Morgan Uncensored that is set to air later this week. The remarks from DeSantis come after the former president has launched multiple attacks on the governor since the midterm elections ended, including trying to brand the governor with derogatory names promoting baseless claims that DeSantis is a groomer and claiming the Democrat billionaire George Soros endorsed DeSantis. Can I just point out here, a big reason why I like DeSantis is because he does appear to be following more of this Willis Reed. I, I, I wouldn't have known to call it that. I didn't know the story until very recently, but the Willis Reed model of leadership He does appear to me to be following that model. And I don't know what you would call Trump's model, but try to come up with the most hurtful names you can think of to sideline people you formerly endorsed glowingly in the most hyperbolic of terms, just because they actually might be good enough to give you a run for the money in your reelection bid. Uh, That is not... That is not what I'm seeing with the Willis Reed story, and we need more of the Willis Reed mindset. It seems to me. So, yeah, I believe Ron DeSantis would have fired Fauci. I think, if I can speculate, part of the reason why Trump didn't is because he overestimated his ability to keep things in check. And with regards to Fauci, you know, it was just easier, right? It was easier rather than potentially looking. Like he was anti-science, it was easier to let Fauci do the public health official advisory talking and to tell everybody, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. And it backfired in a big way. Speaking of golden calves, look no farther than the scientism of people like Dr. Fauci. DeSantis would have probably fired Fauci. I mean, hindsight's twenty-twenty; It's hard to say now, but I should like to give DeSantis a chance to fire people like Fauci. You know, Fauci is gone, but if people like Fauci would be hmm, sent looking for a different line of work, that would be good. That would be really good for all of us. It would be good for everybody here in the U.S. It would be good for everyone around the world. Well, maybe all of the people who look to America as America has Historically build itself as a city on a hill, a shining city on a hill. It'd be good for those people. A couple people, it might not be so good for Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. Cardinal Pritchard over at Not the Bee reports they have signed a new economic deal and plan to, quote, stand guard over the world order, end quote. Under their new quote, friendship without limits, end quote. Beijing is trying to flex, trying to put itself forward. Xi Jinping, leading the Chinese Communist Party, is trying to put China to the fore in terms of world leadership, brokering peace deals in the Middle East. Now, more publicly, they've been doing it behind the scenes, but more publicly, partnering with Russia, Vladimir Putin. The optics of this are important. I don't believe that folks like Putin and Xi Jinping would welcome a Ron DeSantis presidency. I don't. And the reason for that is because he would fire people like Dr. Fauci. And I have to believe that Putin and Xi Jinping like that we are a house divided against ourselves. Part of the reason why they are shaking hands and posing for photo ops and announcing new cooperative deals is because that united front is a powerful thing. It will scare their enemies. It will keep the people in their own fold in line. And on our side, we've got to get the folks who have been trying to sow division along very leftist lines, godless lines, idolatrous lines, we've got to get them set off to one side and remove them from positions of governing authority. They are not trustworthy. They have proven themselves to be untrustworthy. And it's time for accountability. And we need somebody who will provide that accountability, not somebody who himself behaves in highly questionable ways towards those who were formerly his lieutenants. How much better would it be if Trump right now, instead of attacking DeSantis, making veiled threats, trying to smear some mud in his eye, were saying, you know what? DeSantis is a good guy. He's done a good job. He would also be a fine pick. And if that's what's best for America, then that's what you should do. How much better would that be? How much respect would I gain for Trump? On the other hand, there's the possibility that this is all just a clever ruse, reverse psychology for the people that don't like Trump. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not going to say I'm sure of that, but that might be the effect, not the cause. Daily Wire News also reported on the Xi Jinping-Vladimir Putin talks. Xi describes the deepening bond with Russia. Chinese leader Xi Jinping is putting on a show of solidarity with Russian President Vladimir Putin, with his three-day state visit to Moscow that began on Monday. The Kremlin said on Tuesday that Xi is spending his time in Russia's capital negotiating and signing statements with Putin that seek to strengthen economic cooperation between their nations over the next decade, ties which offer Putin a lifeline after Western nations levied sanctions against Russia for its war in Ukraine. And here's the kicker, guys. Here's the kicker. Democrats, globalists have made... China as strong and wealthy as they are, they've looked the other way to China's human rights abuses on an epic scale. They have given our technology to the Chinese so that China could produce, manufacture goods very inexpensively, you might even say with slave labor. And so now when China has Russia's back and potentially closes its markets to Western Europe and the United States and anyone who sides with them, that's a pretty significant threat. And that's what the play is here. First, it's a, we can wait, we can hold out. We don't need you guys. And then if there's not some kind of a de-escalation, we have war. Now, you might say we already have war, but just wait. What is going on in Ukraine? That's beta testing World War III. That's how you should think of it. That's beta testing for World War III. Work out the bugs. See what works. See what doesn't work. Touch it up. Meanwhile, speaking of cleanup domestically in a house divided against itself, a Russian pop star was recently found dead from drowning after criticizing Vladimir Putin. Russian pop star Dima Nova, Daily Wire reports, was found dead. He was 34, born Dmitri Svergunov, Nova founded the popular electronic group Cream Soda, whose song Aqua Disco became an anthem for anti-war protests in Russia, Newsweek reported. In the song, the pop group called out Putin over his alleged $1.3 billion mansion, the song was commonly heard at protests against the country both before and after Russia's invasion into Ukraine. These protests became known as AquaDisco parties. According to the song's lyrics, AquaDisco is a wild hedonistic pool party for one. Calvertjournal.com reported. One of the lyrics read, Quote, The King of Leisure, I will fill superhero. End quote. Another read, "Quote Aquadisco, here I am by the world super, ad duper." End quote. You know what's curious here is this kind of thing does happen in the U.S., but not so much, not with the same regularity. So someone will say, "Well, you know," and and they did in the comment section down below. They said, "Oh, that seems to happen quite a lot to people who have any." Connection to the Clintons, for instance, Bill and Hillary Clinton have had a lot of people who've worked for them, who've known them, mysteriously commit suicide over the years. It's a long, long list. If you've never researched that, look it up. It's pretty astounding. And what I mean is not necessarily that Putin assassinated, murdered this pop star, or that the Clintons have. Murdered or assassinated people who crossed them or were in the process of crossing them. No, no, I, I, I don't mean to suggest that at all. I just mean sometimes people don't hang themselves in a jail cell when they're in solitary confinement. The security cameras are turned off, and there's a lot of powerful people that might be in some legal trouble if they testified if it became common knowledge who their clients were. Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. When I talk about us cleaning house here in the US, I want to be upfront and very direct. I am not for assassination. Not that anyone was going there or thinking that, but here's why I bring it up. I'm not for us electing people who do assassination as their cleanup process when they might otherwise be held accountable. I'm not for that. That's a dirty way to get and keep power. It's corrupt. The king is not the law. Someone who aspires to be king is not the law. God is ultimately the source of law. He is the lawgiver. And if you are doing things that violate God's law, then our laws should reflect God's law and there should be accountability and there should be due process and vice versa. If you happen to know something that the public needs to know in order for there to be accountability for lawbreakers who just so happen to be in government, I believe that the tradition here in America very consciously inspired by both the Old Testament and the New Testament, necessitates that you blow the whistle. We need a media that reports on the facts and does not cover up stories and run interference for the people they like. We need people in government who will actually remove corrupt officials and hold them legally Accountable for their actions. We need to promote people who have a proven track record of doing that and doing it well and doing it consistently. We do not need to promote people who will assassinate the character of people who stand between them and power, either getting power or holding on to it. But that is to say, there's a lot of cleanup that needs to happen and it starts. With us. It starts with us confessing and repenting of our sins against God, first and foremost, and our sins against one another. You start there, and then you're able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And if each one of us would do that at the level where we have latitude, we have authority, we have the capability of making a difference, if each one of us would do that, then This country, I think, could get a lot of grace, but we can't play the golden calf thing where we say, we're going to do it because the golden calf wants us to do it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. See, the trouble there is when you start giving the credit to the golden calf for what God actually told you to do, then you get to pick and choose what of those commands is applicable, which ones you obey, which ones you disregard and ignore when it's expedient. This is also the problem with too much prudential decision-making in proportion to principled decision-making. No, do what's right. That is prudent. First and foremost, the prudent thing as you see it is not always what's right. The right thing to do is always prudent. Neither be too good nor too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Sure. Be wise as serpents, be harmless as doves. Yes. Yes see trouble coming and hide yourself. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 But part of the trouble (laughs) that we need to see coming is what happens when we see others being led away to the slaughter and we don't speak up to warn them in their defense. Proverbs 31 gets a lot of play for the excellent woman, the excellent wife who fears the Lord, how she is to be prized above great riches, so also a good name, by the way, and so also the beginning part of Proverbs 31 tells us something of how to get a good name and how to keep it. You speak up for those who are poor and destitute, those who are not able to speak up for themselves, those whose rights are being trampled on because that means that they do have rights. God considers them as having rights. For instance, the right to do what he has commanded them to. For instance, for example, The right to not be murdered, the right to not be slandered with a false accusation and have everybody go along with it just because the majority seems to be. For instance, the right to not have somebody stealing what belongs to you, the right to enjoy the fruits of your own labors, that's a right. The right to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, that's a right. This leads us to the last thing we'll talk about in this episode. And that is the sixth and final question in the arcforum.com survey. Alliance for Responsible Citizenship is what ARC stands for. ARCforum.com slash surveys, where you can find it, fill it out. Now, having talked through each of these questions on the podcast, I intend to go question by question at ARCforum.com and type in an essay format answer now that I've thought about it at length, carefully on each of these questions, I'll read for you this sixth question pertaining to environmental stewardship. How should we take the responsibility of environmental stewardship seriously? That's the question. How should we take the responsibility of environmental stewardship seriously? And here's what I would say. For one, we need to understand who made us Who made the environment? Also, what does it mean that we are stewards? Who are we a steward for? Well, let's look up the definition of steward, and then we'll answer that question. According to (coughs) Oxford Languages, steward, noun, a person who looks after the passengers on a ship, aircraft, or train, and brings them meals. That's the first definition. Uh, similar to flight attendant, cabin attendant, stewardess, member of the cabin staff. The second definition, when it's a noun, is a person responsible for supplies of food to a college club or other institution. A person responsible for supplies of food. Now, let's take this piece by piece, shall we? A steward is first and foremost responsible in relation to other people. That's what the word means according to Oxford languages, formerly the Oxford Dictionary. A steward is primarily responsible for and to other people. And then insofar as there's a space, an environment, or material items within that environment that we would say they are stewards in or in relation to as well, the goal is that you steward these items in this environment to the end of taking care of these other people, these people who are in that space, who need those items. Food, for instance. Now, some similar words, nouns in the second definition. Major Domo, butler. So now think butler, right? Imagine, if you will, if we had that much class, imagine that you and I were butlers in some fancy English estate. Let's say this is Downton Abbey, and we work downstairs, and we're butlers. We put on the fancy suit, we make sure it's clean, pressed, ironed, no wrinkles. We want to look sharp. Why? Because we want the master of the house to look sharp to the other members of his household, to his other servants, and to guests. And so we are going to look sharp so that we reflect well on him. Someone comes into our master's house, his estate. Perhaps they're there on business to meet with the master. Perhaps they're there for a dinner or a ball. If we are told to serve them dinner and get out a certain wine, and pour it for them, we do so with a view to our master being pleased in the way that we exercise our duties. We do so in relation to the guest or our fellow servants, ultimately under the umbrella of will the master be pleased by this or that? If the master would be pleased by me showing a guest to the door because he's been rude, the master says it's time for him to go, well, then we don't first and foremost serve the guest. We first and foremost serve the master. And we show that person to the door, or we show them to their room. We help them get their coat and their hat. We bring the carriage around. We're polite. We're courteous. But ultimately, we know who we work for in that case. Not for the guest, but insofar as we may be tasked by the master to serve the the guest, we serve the guest because we work for the master. You see, how would it be if the steward or butler forgot that they work at the pleasure of the master, at his will and whim? And they started thinking that they, first and foremost, work for the estate. They work for this beautiful building. They work for the lawns and the gardens, and the orchards. How would it be if they forgot that they work for the master? And they started thinking that they work for these floors. They work for that pantry. They work for this stable. They work for that gazebo. And they forgot that they work for the master. They take care of these things because these things belong to the master. And the master has them in a certain arrangement for a purpose. For instance, as a means to the end of exercising his will. Well, odds are high that there would be some tension. There would be some friction and conflict. We would have some problems. What if the master told us to do something with his estate that we didn't agree with? Well, then we would do what we felt was best because you can't ask the estate. You then become the spokesperson. You become the arbiter you do what you think is best. What if we kicked the master out of the estate? We said, hey, you keep messing with it. The estate wouldn't like that. What would the master say? The master would say, uh, you're fired. I'll have you horse <laughs> probably if this is some English country estate and he would be right to, he would be right to. It's a poor steward who forgets the master's will who forgets who he works for and starts thinking that he works for the estate itself in some disembodied way. In that case, he starts acting like he is the master and he's not the steward is not the master. Think also here of Lord of the Rings. Denethor is the steward of Gondor. His seat is in Minas Tirith, this great, beautiful white city, not far from Mordor. Denethor, at a certain point in the Lord of the Rings books by J.R.R. Tolkien, finds out that Aragorn, who is the heir to the throne, is on his way. Denethor behaves in such a way as to make clear that he has forgotten that he is a steward. He has decided to think of himself as actually the master. Aragorn, is the rightful king. If Aragorn is coming to claim his throne, then Denethor, to be a good steward, should be clearing a path, looking for every way possible to expedite the rightful king's wishes. And he doesn't. In fact, by turn, refusing to support what Gandalf is doing in preparing the defense of the city, then actively sabotaging it after a fashion, Denethor Would rather the city be destroyed, he would rather throw himself from the ramparts to his death than welcome Aragorn back in and see himself removed, in a sense. And yet, the sad irony is, if he would have embraced his true calling as a steward, he likely would have had it better than ever. He would have been rewarded. He would have been told, well done, good and faithful servant. Instead of plunging to his death before the enemy attacked? Well, let's come back to this ARC question. The Alliance for Responsible Citizenship asks How should we take the responsibility of environmental stewardship seriously? And here's what I'll say briefly only by remembering who we are stewarding the environment for. Who is the master here? The God who made the heavens and the earth. And who are his guests? In a sense, we are our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, our fathers, our mothers, our wives, our husbands, our children, if we have children, our grandchildren, if we have grandchildren, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. Those are our guests, in a sense, if we are stewards. And so to approach environmental stewardship properly, you can't be anti-human, And you can't be an atheist. Not if you want to take this seriously. Not if you want to do a good job of it. You have to know what the thing is for. When God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, that is, exercise dominion over it, he wants the earth to be filled up with his image bearers. When people start to talk as though they want the opposite of that, they want the earth to be emptied of image bearers, you should smell a rat. Odds are high we have a fox guarding the hen house in that case. Something has crept in while we weren't paying attention and subverted the will of God, which is instinctively, even for people who don't have the word, it's instinctively written on our hearts that we would do God's will as we were made to. You know, there's a great book, great, great book that I'm really enjoying. I'm loving it to tell you the truth. The more I read of it, the better I like it. This book is Dominion by Tom Holland. Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. It's not been out for too many years. Looks like release date, according to audible.com, is October 29th, 2019. Subtitle, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. I may quibble a little bit about the revolution bit. But I take their meaning when people say the American Revolution or they say this or that is revolutionary. I know what you mean. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So we don't want to be rebels, but we need to understand that repentance is not rebellion, it is restoration. Our sin was evil, it separated us from God and one another. Repentance and grace, forgiveness, mercy, found in Christ, is restorative. It restores peace. It restores shalom. This remade the world when Christianity, one, made its way through the Roman Empire, two, was persecuted violently and yet endured, three, was recognized and affirmed by Constantine the Great, four, led to the rise of universities Under the Holy Roman Empire, monasteries and universities in the West preserved the learning of the Greeks and the Romans for future generations. Don't credit the Muslims or the Vikings with having created the modern world. Did they influence events? Sure. You betcha. It was the Christian faith that stabilized science and allowed for advancing human flourishing in the world, having even a conception of something like human rights instead of a two-tiered justice system where people who criticize from the one sphere against the other sphere always seem to wind up mysteriously dead under strange circumstances. The Christian ethic said we all are alike created equal. We hold these truths to be Self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Well, that sounds an awful lot like Genesis, for instance. It sounds an awful lot like the beginning of Genesis, the end of Proverbs. <laughs> that's, that's wisdom straight from God's Word. And so, what does that do to environmental environmental stewardship? What does that do? What does that do to environmental stewardship? When you promote human flourishing. Now, some will say because they've got their wires crossed, for humans to flourish will destroy the planet. And I would say sinful humanity filling the earth with violence, that's not good for the environment. That's not good stewardship. So it's not enough just for people to have lots of babies and spread out all over the world. But that's where, again, you have to understand who you are stewarding what for. And are you doing so in the way that they have prescribed? directed, instructed, led, commanded. Our laws have, for 2,000 years in the West, roughly been critiqued, evaluated, assessed, reasoned with, weighed, measured, sometimes found wanting, other times embraced and promoted wholeheartedly by Christians. And how do I say that? You say, well, Charlemagne, he- That wasn't 2,000 years ago. Constantine the Great, that wasn't 2,000 years ago. And I say, even from Peter and John in the temple, telling the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. You have proof positive that Christians for 2,000 years have been assessing the laws of men, the commands of men relative to the commands of God. And that's the pattern that we need to rediscover. We need to fall in love with again in the West. If we would take the responsibility of environmental stewardship seriously, are some of these laws actually anti-human at root? And they want to do the opposite of what God has commanded us to do because there's an inversion of the creature-creator distinction, which is true, which is good, which is beautiful. I don't want to be God. Do you want to be God? No. How about this? How about aspire to be a father? If you are a man, aspire to be a good father, one who doesn't frustrate his children, provoke them to wrath, doesn't neglect them, who disciplines them when they need to be disciplined, bringing them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Makes sure that when they ask for a loaf of bread, they get a loaf of bread. When they ask for a fish, they get some fish, not a snake, not a stone, just for kicks and grins. Aspire to be a good father in imitation of your heavenly father, who is a good father. He's an actually good father, unlike all of us at sometimes. And you know what? Carry that same energy into the workplace, into your neighborhood, into your church, into your school, into government, not in an infantilizing sort of a way, but in a provisional and protective way. And we will see environmental stewardship taken seriously in an appropriate way that promotes human flourishing instead of seeing human flourishing as a threat. No, no. Environmental stewardship has to be to the end of fulfilling the dominion mandate in order for it to actually be stewardship of the right kind. Otherwise, it's just us making a golden calf and saying, this, behold, Israel, your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Come on, man. No way. You just threw some gold in a fire and out popped this calf. (laughs) That calf didn't bring us up out of Egypt. Get out of here. No, 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 no. Working in oil and gas, I would love to see the attitude shift in this country to where how I provide for my family is not seen as a threat or as something vile and low. Like I'm one of the untouchables in a Hindu caste system. I would love for what I do for a living to not be looked at with disdain and contempt or pity when not disdain. I would love it if it ceased to be the case that my own government is a house divided against itself where human flourishing in this country is concerned, particularly because I've got a house full of little humans. My wife and I have seven sons, one daughter. We'll see if we get a son or a daughter in November I won't be sad if it's a girl. I won't. I won't be sad. If it's a boy, though, I am all right with that. I am okay with that outcome. That would be 900% increase on mullets in the next generation, among generation alpha. And that 900% increase in my line, in my household, (laughs) Given that so many people are not having kids, so many of my generation are not having kids, they're going to have an outsized impact. And I want to make sure that they have a good upbringing. They get good food. They have good shelter. They have good clothing. They love the Lord. They love one another. They love the people around them. They aspire to be good fathers someday. And maybe my nine sons each have nine sons after them. And then what? Right. 81 men, potentially, two generations from now. And what if each of those have nine? I know they won't all have nine sons, but just think with me for a moment. I'll do the math here real quick. Uh, Nine times nine times nine. 729. That's quite a lot. I want to be a good steward, for their sake. I think part of the reason that a lot of people are very mixed up on this question is because a lot of fathers have checked out. We need more fathers engaged, showing how it's done. Even if you have to drag your leg out there onto the court, get out there, get out there and play, play your best, put your team ahead of your career and they will play their hearts out and you'll win one way or another. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. Stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be getting out of the golden calf business into the command to leave Sinai, the tent of meeting, Moses' intercession, Moses making new tablets of stone because remember he threw down the two that he came off the mountain with initially. It's not the end of the story just yet. We'll keep on reading through see what else we find. Also, by the way, just so you know, I'm only probably going to record one more episode for the next several days. So if you find yourself hankering for some more of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, hit subscribe. 99 cents a month is all you need to pay to get access to the last third of my library of podcast episodes. There's plenty probably that you haven't listened to old episodes. Go back and check some of them out if you haven't yet. But I am going to be taking my third son, Solomon Emanuel Mullet, on a trip to the Grand Canyon this weekend. It's a bit late, but the goal was once we weren't able to do it on his birthday, the end of December, the goal was to get it done by the end of the first quarter of this year and by golly we're gonna do it lord willing so we're gonna go to the grand canyon it'll be my first time certainly his first time and i'm really looking forward to it it's gonna be really great but that is to say i won't be taking my podcast recording equipment on the road you'll just have to go back and listen to some older episodes that's just what you're gonna have to do sorry hopefully they're timeless let me know if they aren't (laughs) I might need to rethink some of my process here, if so. But again, as I said, I got to run, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.